You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Thanks for tuning into Mining Stock Education. And in today's show, we will be doing our quarterly check-in with Dr. Rob Stevens from miningessentials.com. Wrote an excellent book. If you're newer to mining investing, I encourage you to pick up his book, Mineral Exploration and Mining Essentials. In today's quarterly check-in with Dr. Rob, we will be going over the copper markets, its supply and demand fundamentals as uh, Dr. Rob has researched it, as well as copper deposits and what are some of the key things that you should look for and look out for in investing in a copper play. So uh, Rob, thanks for joining me again and please take it away. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Good, uh, good morning, everybody, or afternoon, evening, depending on when you're listening. Uh, thanks, Bill, for the opportunity to uh, uh, check in again with uh, your listeners and talk a little bit about uh, what I think is a really interesting topic, uh, the copper market and, and the copper demand. Uh, I'm sure anybody who's involved in the metals world is, has been hearing a lot about copper really in uh, conjunction with uh, moving towards a low-carbon economy and an electrified economy. Uh, copper being that metal that conducts electricity uh, far greater than really any other metal, uh, so that um, you know it's it's likely demand scenarios are going to be significant. So um, yeah, I think it's a it's a timely and and uh, uh, interesting topic to dig into. So uh, let's just go at it and and uh, get on to it. So. All right, one sec. There we are. So, uh, as as you mentioned, Bill, I'm going to look at three main uh, topics for this presentation: copper supply and demand trends. Uh, so, what are people currently thinking in terms of the supply that's out there, and then the demand uh, that's uh, arising? Uh, we're going to touch a little bit on copper mineral deposits. I always think it's good to have a bit of a sense in your mind of what is that geology that people are exploring. If you're a junior company investor, I think it is it is good to know what are people exploring, uh, what are the size, shape, grade and tonnage of those deposits. Uh, that can really help you understand uh, the kind of drill hole intersections <clears throat> uh, that you should expect from a, you know, a, a really quality deposit. Uh, and help you interpret those drill hole intersections. And then at the end, uh, just a few sort of wrap-up comments of things that investors can think about uh, around the, the copper market. So let's go into copper supply uh, first. And there, there's kind of uh, three themes here that I want to uh, look at in the copper supply, uh, starting with uh, these slides here. Um, so the first issue is supply is increasing slowly. And for those who are on YouTube, the left-hand image here uh, shows copper production from 2010 uh, to 2021. And this is some data from the U.S. Geological Survey. Uh, and it, so it does show a steady increase in copper, but not by much. I mean, if you look from, say, 2016 to uh, 2021, uh, we're looking only at a 3 4% increase uh, in copper production and annual increases in the, the 2 to 3%. So it is going up, the amount of copper supply coming onto the market, but, but not significantly at this point in time. So that's the first point. Uh, the second one, which is uh, the slide on the right here, is that major new discoveries of copper deposits are slowing down. And most new resources that are then feeding into some of this mine production are coming from existing mines. Uh, now that's important. I mean, 
existing mines almost always have additional resources that can be put into production. Uh, and that is always an important part of the supply. But at some point, those mines will run out of resources. And we need new discoveries and new mines to come on to replace that. And also, if there's demand increase, to feed into that new demand. So this um, uh, chart on the right here, which uh, primarily takes data from S&P Global Intelligence, shows uh, major copper discoveries actually all the way back to 1990. Uh, and a key point is over about two decades, there was an average of about 10 discoveries per year, but only 16 major copper discoveries have been made in the last 10 years. Uh, and so the number of discoveries and on, on the chart here, it shows that in 2017, 18 and 19, uh, there were no major discoveries. Um, and, and that is even despite there being a, a pretty good amount of uh, dollars put into expiration. Again, on this chart here, there's a line that shows copper expiration budgets. Uh, so copper budgets are doing well, but the discoveries aren't coming. So that's really a concern for the supply in the next five to 10 years. It does take a while, obviously, from a discovery to production. Uh, so it's, it's really suggesting some real risk in terms of supply uh, in that five to 10 year time frame. And here's another one that we've known about for some time uh, on the supply side is that copper grades are decreasing. So this particular chart here with some data from Wood Mackenzie uh, shows uh, sort of average copper grades from 1990 and projected out to 2030. In 1990, average grades were about 1.6% copper. If we come to today, we're maybe at one or a little bit less and going forward, it's suggesting it'll get even lower than that. So that's going to put pressure on the price um, as you're mining lower and lower grades. Uh, of course, your, your cost per ton of copper produ produced goes up. Now, technologies are improving and we are able to mine uh, cheaper than we did in the past. Um, and that is partly why Grades are going down because we are able to be, to, you know, to profitably mine lower grade deposits. Uh, but it is uh, putting pressure on the system. Um, ultimately, you can only go so low grade, uh, and it's also putting um, uh, supply pressure uh, because you're just not for every ton of ore that you're mining, you're not producing as much copper. So, you know, when we look at fairly steady state production, we look at a real lack of new discoveries. And those mines that are being mined are lower and lower grade. Um, you know, it really puts some, some challenges on the supply going forward. Now, if we go to the demand side and look at that. So, uh, you know, there's lots of different data you can find out here. Uh, what I've chosen is a recent study by S&P Global Intelligence uh, on uh, copper, uh, both supply and demand. And you know what they're suggesting is that uh, the copper demand is quite likely to double essentially between today and 2035. Now they're basing that on uh, the premise that we will meet, um, or that you know globally uh, we'll meet the U.S. and EU net zero targets by 2050. And really, to to get to those net zero targets by 2050, uh, you got to Know, back up before that, and so the amount of copper that's really going to need to feed into the system to produce the you know the the electrical network to feed into, for example, electric vehicles, uh, is going to happen uh, by 2035. 
And so the chart here uh, sort of shows that increase. But um, I think what's also important to know is it's not just about um, um, you know electric vehicles and and that transition to a low carbon economy. Uh, Copper is used widely for many uses across our society, and you know that is going to increase as well. It's not as if that's that's stopping. Uh, and so the two of those put together really show a significant increase in copper demand, uh, particularly between now and 2035, uh, but continuing uh, beyond that. So that leads to uh, looking at then this supply-demand balance. Um, and this, again, is from the, the same study by S&P Global Intelligence. And what they did is they looked at a couple of scenarios. Um, and so if you're looking at the image here, I'll just start with the uh, the gray line at the top. Uh, and so for reference, here's zero. So that would be supply and demand are in balance at zero. Uh, above it means there's more supply and below it means there's not enough supply. And they looked at two scenarios. One they call a high ambition scenario, uh, which is sort of highly ambistic, uh, optimistic assumptions about recycling which is likely to be also an important source of, of supply for copper, and also capacity utilization of mines and refineries, improving their efficiency, you know, getting more out of the existing deposits, et cetera. And then they took a, another scenario, which they call the Rocky Road scenario, uh, which is basically a continuation of recent recycling and capacity utilization rates. Um, so again, the in this rocky road scenario is where we really see a huge uh, a supply deficit uh, peaking at about 2035. Now, realistically, we'll probably be somewhere in between there, but in both scenarios, they show a fairly good deficit uh, by 2035. Uh, and and so, you know, whether you take status quo or the best scenario going forward, um, uh, there is a a real supply issue likely coming. Now, I do note here that the peak of that supply deficit is, a, is in, in this modeling anyway, in 2035, and that it improves as we go forward beyond that. I guess that's the expectation that, you know, prices and other things will encourage more supply to come onto the market. But as we know, it takes a long time to permit a new mine. Uh, so if we start ramping things up in the next few years here, uh, that's really only going to show up in that uh, increased supply and addressing that imbalance uh, after 2035. So um, what does this mean then when we have this supply-demand imbalance? <clears throat> so, I mean, the obvious one is it's likely to lead to higher copper prices in the medium term. You know, I, I feel that prices in the 550 per pound uh, or higher at some point in the next few years are, are going to be very likely. Um, you can find quite a range of uh, projections out there, some suggesting higher than $9 a pound. Uh, I've read others sort of feel that it's likely to be steady state in the 350 to 4 range, uh, $4 range per pound. <clears throat> um, I think that's probably a little bit low, but um, uh, you know there isn't a, a tight consensus on this, other than I would say most feel that there will be a pretty good copper price going forward. Now, the other part is when you have a supply demand imbalance or a gap, that will lead to some kind of response. Uh, you know, we're going to have to either fill that gap or do something else to address those, those uh, issues. And I say that because depending on what some of those responses are, it will influence the price. Um, 
And so let's just look at what, what might be some of those responses to this gap. So obviously higher mine production, that's going to be key. Um, we've already touched on that. We need more discoveries and we really need to get to that point of higher mine production. More recycling. Um, you know, I think that that's uh, important. Copper, it, it can be quite readily recycled. And I think that uh, as prices, if prices do go up, we'll, we'll certainly see more demand for that. You know, unfortunately, I remember last time prices went up, it led to a lot of people trying to steal copper and they weren't always so smart about it because they were stealing live wires sometimes. But uh, uh, we don't need more of that, <laughs> but more recycling would be good. Faster permitting. Of course, we'd all love that. It'd be nice to see a new discovery get into production in just a few years. And you do hear governments talking about that. Uh, I'm based in Canada. I hear our federal government talking about that. Whether that results in action, I'm not really sure, but that could be an important one. I think probably an, an inevitable reality would be slower adoption of electric vehicles and technologies. Uh, simply, there may not be enough supply uh, if we don't have enough copper. Uh, those prices might become so high that people are just not buying, for example, electric vehicles uh, uh, this year. They're going to wait three or four years. Uh, you know, I think we've seen this a little bit in Europe that uh, the move towards alternative power, uh, when there's a bit of a you know a challenge as a result in this case of the uh, situation in your in Ukraine, uh, that um, you know they weren't quite ready for those. Uh, for that move to alternative power. So I, I think we will see slower adoption, which will decrease that demand for copper a little bit. Breakthrough technologies, um, alloys with higher conductivity. I mean, copper has a, a, such a command uh, because of it really being the top of uh, the pile when it comes to the ability to conduct electricity. But, you know, if it's really expensive, uh, people are going to be putting a lot of money into research to look for alternatives. So that's that's a possibility. Uh, substitution as well. Aluminum uh, can substitute in some cases. Uh, uh, Bill and I were talking about this. I mean, it overheats. It's it's not as good as copper for sure. It's a lot lighter though, which gives some benefits. So any sort of combination of these uh, issues may come into to play to address the supply demand uh, imbalance. So I'm kind of talking medium to long here, uh, term here, uh, you know, out into 2035 and beyond. Uh, but um, why don't we just take a, a quick look here? Well, what's happening kind of right now uh, to try and understand that situation? Um, what we've got uh, two charts here from Kitco. Uh, the one on the left are copper prices over the last five years. And we can see here through primarily 2021, uh, we were up uh, 450, give or take a little bit. Uh, dollars per pound for the price of copper going quite strong now has dropped down to around 350. So it's pulled back some amount from uh, those peak periods, which seems to not quite fit with this expectation of so much demand and not enough supply and et cetera. Uh, also, if we look at uh, the chart on the right, this is uh, copper warehouse stocks, uh, specifically in the London Metal Exchange. Uh, but you could take a chart that had the London Metal Exchange, Comox, uh, and uh, the Shanghai and put it together and it would show a similar trend. And that is generally decreasing copper warehouse stocks. So that's a concern. Um, you know, if there's a sudden uh, pickup in demand of copper, uh, there's not really a lot of warehouse stock available. And so, you know, that could suggest that a supply crunch, um, you know, is is not too far uh, ahead of us if that demand uh, picks up. 
But really, why are we in a bit of a lull here in the copper price? Why is it not continuing to go up or stay at 450, given all these fundamentals I've just talked about? Well, there's always short-term factors that come into play uh, with metal prices. Um, you know, And so right now, potential for a global recession, or we're in one, depending on, on your perspective. Uh, copper is really a supply-demand type commodity. So recessions reduce demand. Uh, and therefore, the prices tend to drop down. Uh, reduced demand in China, economic slowdown, and uh, their sort of zero COVID policy uh, has really reduced that demand in China. And, and as many people will know, uh, much of the metal demand and, and metal price strength over the last 15 years, uh, realistically, uh, has had China's had a big influence on that, the demand in China. So less demand in China definitely reduces uh, those short-term prices. A high U.S. dollar. Uh, metals are priced in U.S. dollars, and a higher U.S. dollar uh, makes metals more expensive, basically, for everybody else who, who isn't uh, using the U.S. dollar. That can decrease demand a little bit. Oil prices as well. Um, you know, they haven't actually taken off all that much, but um, they've reduced back since the initial invasion into Ukraine. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, high oil prices... Uh, Increase the cost of everything, and um, and so that kind of puts pressure on 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 the demand side. So I just say this to say, uh, you know, I think the medium term fundamentals are very strong, but of course you always have to then put on top of that. Well, what are the short term issues that are also affecting uh, copper prices? Okay, so there's a little bit of a outline of uh, supply demand fundamentals, and you know what uh, people are talking about in terms of where copper's going in the next uh, <clears throat> ten or or more years. Um, I want to just come back to the geology a little bit now and and talk about uh, copper deposits. So so as a primary uh, source for copper, uh, where is that coming from? And on here, we've got a chart uh, from the United States Geological Survey, just breaking down where does most copper come from, from a mineral deposit perspective. Uh, the top is porphyry copper deposits, about three quarters, 75% of uh, copper is coming from those types of deposits. And they're primarily located in the Americas, right from, you know, uh, and the Western side from BC, right down through to the Southern tip of Chile. Uh, there's a lot of uh, good co porphyry copper deposits all the way along in that belt. Uh, there's some elsewhere as, as well in Southeast Asia, for sure, uh, and other parts of the, of the world. The secondary source, uh, as a single source, is then sediment-hosted, what are referred to as strata-bound copper deposits, uh, only at about 10%. Uh, but these are very... Um, uh, they're really good deposits where you can find them, but they're fairly limited in, in distribution. Uh, primarily in the Democratic Republic of Congo and in Zambia, in in Africa, and there's quite a, a long belt of, of copper deposits uh, in that area. And then in Poland, Germany, and in that broader region, uh, there's also a good belt of deposits there. And they do occur elsewhere, uh, but you know not that common outside of these these main belts. And then other, we've got about 15% of other types of deposits. I would put the main ones down as volcanic massive sulfide, also known as VMS deposits, and magmatic sulfide deposits, uh, which would be things like the, the copper nickel deposits in the Sudbury Basin or in Voises Bay. Um, these are also important sources of copper. 
So I want to just take a look uh, a little bit more at, at three types, porphyry copper, sediment-hosted ones, and the volcanic mass of sulfide. Uh, just so you have a little bit of sense of what those look like, and then we'll take that forward to drill holes and, and what kind of drill uh, intersections might you expect from these types of deposits. So here's a couple of images of uh, porphyry copper deposits. Porphyry copper deposits are what we call hydrothermal mineral deposits. Uh, they are big bodies of rock. So one of the ways to think about a porphyry copper is a large body, um, oval to semi-oval in shape, uh, with dimensions of hundreds or even thousands of meters, uh, really in all dimensions. So they're big bodies of rock, and they form primarily at the upper parts of magmatic intrusions, uh, where hydrothermal, copper-bearing hydrothermal fluids coming off of those cooling magma bodies now beneath the ground send out a sort of or create a fracture network of uh, small little fractures in the rock that each end up with a little bit of copper in it. So you end up with big deposits and relatively low grade. Um, and I like the, excuse me, the image on the right for those who are able to, to see it. Uh, this is uh, a model from the Cerro Verde deposit in, in Peru. Uh, just for scale, you know, the, the scale bars here on the grid are about 100 meters. So it gives you a sense of the bit of scale of it. Um, and what we've got here, the red, is actually the copper deposit itself. Then we have a shell of an open pit. So the proposed pit that would be built uh, to mine that deposit. And then you see all these little blue and gray kind of bars on here. Those are all the drill holes that were used to uh, define uh, this deposit. So that gives you a bit of a sense of what they look like. You know, they're, I like to call it blob-like, really, but it's like a, it's a big body of rock, uh, but typically with low grades. But go to the sediment-hosted copper deposits now. Um, these are actually quite different. Um, they're often referred to as stratiform strata bound deposits which mean they essentially lie along sedimentary bedding planes so they tend to be flat or tabular deposits uh, rather than big round things um, and they might extend laterally for long distances uh, but not necessarily be very thick they are not formed uh, well they still are formed through a sort of hydrothermal process but quite differently <clears throat> on the model here on the left, the idea is, is that you have a series of sediments uh, that are rich in copper and you get oxygenated fluids that are moving through those sediments, causing copper to dissolve into those what we call basinals. So this is a sedimentary basin where sediments are sort of uh, getting flushed into a depression uh, and the sediments are being deposited. And you get a lot of water movement in these sedimentary basins. And if you've got a oxygenated water, it dissolves that copper. Those uh, basinal fluids are then migrating up faults or other features within that basin. And then they interact with rocks that are reducing, so have a real lack of oxygen in them. What happens is you end up with a chemical reaction between your copper-rich oxygenated water and your oxygen-poor uh, rock units, uh, and that causes the copper to deposit out. And so in this model, you end up with uh, right along faults, for example, because that's a good place for fluids to move. The red here are those uh, stratiform 
uh, copper deposits forming right at the intersection between where the two different fluids are sort of interacting. And on the right, this is just a model for a project that a company called Ashton Bay Resources is, is looking at in Northern Canada. And I, I just like it because it sort of showed here's their copper targets and they're bedded things. And they can extend again a long distance laterally, uh, but they're not very thick and generally not uh, super wide. So quite different looking than the porphyries. And then the last one I'll come to here is volcanic massive sulfide deposits. Uh, these are again, a hydrothermal type of deposit, uh, similar to porphyry. Uh, they're generated by hydrothermal fluids coming off of usually a cooling uh, magma source. Uh, and those fluids, uh, hydrothermal fluids with metals dissolved in them, migrate up to the seafloor and come out at the seafloor as a hydrothermal vent. And what happens is then rapid cooling of that, that fluid that's, that's filled with metals uh, it might be 350 degrees Celsius, hits the seafloor, cools really quickly, the metals deposit out as a result of that cooling, and you end up with a what's often referred to as a lens-shaped body uh, dominated by sulfide minerals. Uh, and one of those key sulfide minerals is, of course, uh, the copper mineral. Uh, and so the model here on the right, for those that can see it, uh, is a model of a a massive sulfide lens and, and just see the dimensions here. So there's a hundred meters. Um, so these things, you know, can be several hundred meters, uh, you know, in diameter kind of thing, but don't tend to be quite so thick. So they're a little bit more like the sedimentary ones and that they're tabular. But they don't tend to extend laterally as far as the, the sedimentary, um, <clears throat> the strata bound deposits. So there's an, a really quick nutshell, uh, three, the three sort of common types uh, that we're going to find uh, copper in. And there's quite a bit on this table here, but uh, what I think could be really helpful for an investor who's uh, looking at copper, it's, it's always good in my mind to understand what type of deposit are they exploring for? You know, What is that deposit type? Because that leads to how big are the drill intersections you should expect? And what kind of grades should you be expecting from those drill intersections? So if I take something like porphyry copper, again, as I mentioned, they're big deposits, relatively low grade, you know, 0.2% copper sometimes, uh, maybe up to a percent and a half, that'd be a pretty high porphyry deposit. Most of them are much less than that. And their dimensions are hundreds to thousands of meters. So if you're looking for uh, a good drill intersection from a porphyry copper target, you want to see, I put 50 meters plus, other times I've said 100 meters plus, but you want long intersections, but they don't have to be super high grade. You know, if you had something that was 0.2% copper and maybe 0.25 grams per ton gold or higher, that could be a pretty good intersection. Um, the whole economic model with porphyries is, you know, big tonnage, low grade. So you're mining a lot of tonnage uh, and your profits, you know, relatively small per ton, but it's, it's a numbers game. You're just pushing lots of rock through so you can afford to have lower grades. So though, you know, for a porphyry, you want to see big intersections, but they don't need to be that high grade. But I go to something like sediment hosted. So their grades tend to be higher. Um, remember they're sheet like or tabular. So when you think about that, Typically, your drill hole intersections are not hundreds of meters, but you know meters to tens of meters. 
because these deposits are usually sort of say three to 50 meters thick. So if you're drilling right down through that, uh, meters to tens of meters, but you're going to be looking for higher copper grades, half a percent copper, you know, maybe higher. Some of these have grades of averaging 3% copper. Um, so, you know, and there's going to be overlap between the two, but I think those are fairly different, shorter intersections, higher grades. Likewise, I would say when you come to the volcanic massive sulfide deposits, um, uh, these are, are more similar to the sediment hosted. They tend to be sort of flat or lens-like uh, with dimensions of maybe a few hundred meters uh, in diameter, but only two to, to 20 meters thick. So again, intersections that are meters in length, uh, rather than tens or hundreds of meters. And often really what you're looking for is a combination of metals. One of the strengths of the volcanic massive sulfide deposit is that it is a multi-commodity deposit, usually with copper, lead, zinc, gold, and silver. Uh, so you, you're not always focusing just on the copper, it's the combination of all those metals. Uh, so, you know, maybe I can uh, provide Bill with this, this table separately. You could post up uh, for people to take a look at that. Um, you know, every deposit's different and there's huge variability. So sometimes I wonder about the value of trying to summarize it into a short table, but at least it, it can give you some, some sense of that. Okay, so there's a fair bit on this slide, but uh, just to sort of wrap up a little bit here, given the supply demand fundamentals and types of deposits, what are some of the considerations that uh, your listeners can be, can be thinking about? So I think the case for copper demand is strong. Um, that strikes me as no doubt, and that there is an impending supply-demand gap. I think that that also strikes me as as pretty, uh, you know, almost a certainty. With that being said, short-term factors always affect the price. So, for example, recession concerns right now are are dropping that price down. Medium to long-term projections for uh, copper prices range from as low as three fifty, which I think is probably too conservative, to over nine bucks, which is you know, maybe too high for a long-term metal price. But I think the key within that is there will be, let's say between now and 2035, there will be run-ups in the copper prices over the coming years. At times, the concern about the supply-demand imbalance is really going to get heightened. And we will see that copper price jump up. <clears throat> but metal prices are cyclical. So it will come down again too. It's not going to be a steady trend of increasing copper prices to, uh, to 2035. There's going to be some ups and downs. So, you know, your opportunity is uh, to take a look for those run-ups. Um, you know, if you can't get in advance of that, but if, if copper has really taken a big move up and the equity prices have followed, think about getting out at times like that. And um, hopefully if you're lucky, there's a pullback, you can get back in. So, uh, just a, a point, I think, there in terms of, you know, metal prices are always moving around. And while they may react to medium-term trends, there's always those short-term factors that that in, influence the price. So during the periods of heightened interest with higher copper interest, there will be great opportunities in the junior and major sectors. I think that that's a, that's a given too. Timing's always tricky and, and that's going to be part of it. And then when evaluating expiration stocks, keep the geology in mind. What type of deposit is being explored for? What are its size and grade characteristics? And what does that mean for the length and grade of notable drill hole intersections that might move the market? 
So understanding whether uh, a drill hole intersection is really above average, below in the ballpark or not, I think can really help you uh, get a sense of, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, how it, that might move the, the share price for a given uh, company. And I'll just uh, wrap up here by a little bit of a promo. I do have a couple of upcoming Mining Essentials courses uh, that are planned. Uh, for anybody who is going to be in the Yukon uh, in November as part of the Yukon Geoscience Forum, I'm actually doing the first in-person course, seems crazy, for a few years here, uh, November 17th and 18th in Whitehorse. Uh, and you can go to yukongeoscience.ca to, to see that. I'm also going to be doing a course as part of Mineral Exploration Roundup uh, that's uh, based in Vancouver in January 2023. Uh, the short courses as part of Roundup this year are going to be online. So it's an online version, but I have developed a good engaging online course. Uh, so, you know, if you can't make it to Vancouver, you can still do this course online. That's January 17th and 18th, 2023. And if you go to roundup.amebc.ca, uh, you can see registration there. And then just as always, I, I do have some uh, uh, online short courses available at uh, hosted by Thinkific. Uh, you can go to miningcourses.thinkific.com to see those, uh, or just go to my website, miningessentials.com, and there's links in there uh, to the Thinkific courses. And um, I'm going to be looking to get links up to the, to, to the other two live courses as well. So there we are. Uh, thanks for that, Bill. Hopefully uh, that was uh, informative for your listeners. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well, or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.